Well, hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to the Dr. Joe Galati podcast, broadcasting high above the Texas Medical Center in Houston, purveyor of all things related to the liver, health and wellness, nutrition, food and cooking, and all around doctor banter and witty repartee with our experts that visit us. Our website is drjoegalati.com. If you'd like to send me a note, subscribe to our newsletter, or even see me as a patient. If you want to call and be part of the program, dial us at 888-438-9431. And now, on with the podcast. Well, a good Sunday evening to everybody. I'm Dr. Joe Galati. Thanks so much for tuning in tonight. Keep in mind, we're here every Sunday between 7 and 8 p.m. Bringing everybody the best in health and wellness and our single-minded goal every single week is to make you better consumers of health care. Now, what does that mean? People say, well, I want to be a better consumer. Well, in the world of healthcare that I live in, and my colleagues and the team here at Your Health First, being a better consumer of healthcare means you understand how to take care of yourself, how to stay out of the doctor's office, how to understand the signs and symptoms of a disease or a condition where if you know, you can seek help really early. And I'm sure everybody knows if you have a particular problem, minor or serious, the sooner you get in, the sooner you raise your hand and say, excuse me, I think I have a problem. Please, let's look into this. You, you, you call attention to your physician or you're doing things in your life that you realize are going to be beneficial to you. Now, we know that don't smoke, don't drink, exercise, and eat more zucchini. We know that story. But there are so many more things that would constitute good health. Understanding your weight, understanding your blood pressure, your cholesterol, understanding your family history and risk factors that you may have. It's that level of alertness that you know. You've got one leg up to say, I am at risk for a particular disease. I'm at risk for colon cancer. So I do not wait until I am 50 years old to start getting screened for colon cancer. I'm going to start five or 10 years earlier. Or I'm going to be extra cautious about the amount of red meat or my weight because that will contribute to a higher likelihood of colon cancer. And The list goes on and on for all these conditions, but that is what we want you to do. Our website, drjoegalati.com, drjoegalati.com. Sign up for our newsletter. That is probably the best thing that you could do tonight. Sign up for our newsletter. When you go to drjoegalati.com, if you're there for about five seconds, there's a pop-up, and you could download a audio chapter of my book, Eating Yourself Sick. You could check that out. If you like it, you could buy the entire thing, print or audio or even Kindle. And of course, all of our social media is there, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and participate and uh, be part of the program. Okay, so a little later, Dr. Sonny Harpovat. You may say, Dr. Harpovat, that name sounds familiar. 
He is at Baylor College of Medicine. He is at Texas Children's Hospital, the world-famous Texas Children's here in Houston. He is a pediatric hepatologist. I am an adult hepatologist. He is a pediatrician, a pediatric hepatologist. And we're going to continue the dialogue on obesity and fatty liver and what you need to do as a parent, a grandparent, relative, teacher, coach, etc. Now, the prior interview, when he was on several weeks ago, if you go to drjoegalati.com, click on the podcast tab, you will see the full interview with Dr. Harpavat. He is at Texas Children's Hospital. And uh, drjoegalati.com is our website. For this week, uh, it was my daughter's birthday. And as a treat on Saturday morning, I went out and I bought bagels. And now growing up in New York, bagels are a standard staple. I would almost say growing up in New York, maybe every Saturday morning or maybe every Sunday morning or every other weekend, We would have bagels. There were bagel shops on almost every corner. You wouldn't have to drive too far to get a bagel. If you lived in New York City, on every corner, there was a deli of some kind that you would get a bagel sandwich, a bagel with cream cheese, bagel with lox. Now, I would say the best bagel place that, that we go to is, is called Bagel Express. It's not a chain. It is one family from New York. They know how to make bagels. I don't know if it's the water or the know-how, but Bagel Express makes good bagels. That's really the only place we go. And so bagels have, over the years, gotten a bad rap to say, don't put a bagel in your mouth. They're terrible. Bagels are going to make you fat. And so I said, well, okay, let me, let me really look into this and share what I have learned. And so the typical bagel, a medium-sized bagel. Now, what I would say is that like every other food product, bagels have grown in size to what I'm going to say is that the typical medium-sized bagel is about 289 calories. There are some there are some bagels that have swollen to 600 calories. Those are the ones that you want to stay away from. These things are gigantic. It's enough to feed a small family. A single bagel that is. And so your, your typical medium-sized bagel, about 289 calories, about 11 grams of protein, 2 grams of fat, not too much, but the carbs, 56 grams of carbs, not too much fiber, about 3 grams, keeping in mind that you want to shoot for about 35 to 40 grams of fiber a day in your diet. And so what do you get with a bagel? Fair amount of calories, not too much fat, a bunch of carbs. Now, people will say, well, I eat a whole wheat or a whole grain bagel. 
I just think you're fooling yourself. I don't think the whole grain bagel is what people were thinking about when they say we need to eat more whole grains. If you want a whole grain bagel, go ahead. Is it a health advantage? I would say no way. Now, you can make the bagel a little better. A, you could just have half of the bagel. You could try that. Just cut the calories by 50%, save it for another day. You can choose a better topping. Now, nothing is better than butter or cream cheese. A lot of people, I grew up with cream cheese and chive. Now, a, uh, a two tablespoons of cream cheese, which is a serving, is 91 calories. Now, 91 calories are not going to break the bank if you're counting calories. But if you've got a 600-calorie supersized bagel... And then, of course, the typical serving, you're probably going to have to double the amount of cream cheese to cover all the real estate. So it's 91. Let's say it's 100. That's 200. Six. You know, you're up to 800 calories. That could be a lot if you're watching your weight or you're diabetic or you have high blood pressure. But to make it a little bit better, instead of cream cheese or butter, you could put a little hummus on it, avocado. I enjoy putting avocado on it. Put some sliced turkey. You can sort of make a uh, sandwich out of it. A lot of people will scrape out the bread part of the bagel. Sort of cut down on it. So while having a bagel every single morning for breakfast, sooner or later is going to catch up with you. Let's, let's be honest here. But if you want to have a bagel on a Saturday morning or every other Saturday morning, and you are, for the most part, exercising, staying active, eating a reasonably decent diet, I would have to say I don't have that much of a problem with it, assuming you're following the rules of the road all the other days of the week and you're taking care of yourself. Now, if you are trying to lose weight because you've got diabetes, heart disease, fatty liver, kidney problems, and you're under strict orders to lose weight, I would say bagels are not going to be part of your staple diet. All right? So think of it that way. And everything, of course, in moderation. That is the absolute name of the game. All right, Dr. Sonny Harpavant from Texas Children's will be up in just a little while. Get out a pencil and a sheet of paper so that you could take notes on what Dr. Harpavant is saying. I'm Dr. Joe Galati. Every Sunday between 7 and 8 p.m., we're here. Don't forget, go to drjoegalati.com. Stay tuned. We'll be right back.
Welcome back, everybody. Dr. Joe Galati, thanks for tuning in and spending a part of your weekend with us. We're here every Sunday between 7 and 8 p.m. Don't forget, go to drjoegalati.com and be part of the program. All right, coming up in a moment is Dr. Sonny Harpavad. He is a pediatric hepatologist, a liver specialist at Texas Children's. But if you want to listen to the prior interview with Dr. Harpavat, it is on our podcast link. So go to drjogalati.com. Up in the upper right-hand corner, it is podcast, and you can go to that site there, drjogalati.com. All right. So in the uh, few minutes we have here, let me talk about the COVID-19 vaccine. So I had gone forward about three weeks ago. I had essentially no side effects. The entire week after the vaccine, while I was aware and I was looking for some potential problems, I had nothing. And I was telling people that on a scale of 1 to 10, my left arm hurt 0.5, not much at all. Some people I know had a little bit more flu-like symptoms, but for the most part, everybody did well. Now, my understanding, and I'm going tomorrow for part two of the Pfizer vaccine, I have heard that more people are having some side effects, that they're developing fever and headache and just not feeling well for a few days. Now, others have done well that they did not have any side effects. So I will report back to everybody. But the, the one thing I want to share with all of you is that there has been a lot to do about where do I get the vaccine? How do I get the COVID-19 vaccine? And I would say it is disappointing. It is challenging. But when you look at the emotional tsunami that is behind the entire COVID-19 story. And now we have a vaccine. Everybody wants to get vaccinated, but we are trying to roll it out to frontline workers, physicians, nurses, first responders. Then we are vaccinating the most high-risk individuals, 75 and older. And then we are getting to the next tier, which are going to be patients that have had a transplant, people that have underlying medical conditions, ranging from obesity to heart disease to suppressed immune systems, kidney disease, dialysis patient, heart patients, etc. Now, when I got the first vaccine three weeks ago, I immediately was booked for vaccine number two, and it was supposed to be today on a, on, a, on a Sunday. Well, the middle of the week, I received a voicemail. I did not catch the name of the person. It was a little garbled. And they said, your appointment, they did not say the appointment for the vaccine. They said, your appointment for Sunday is canceled, and you have a new appointment Monday. And they did not tell me who to call, where to go, or what to do to confirm this. Well, 
I was at the uh, hospital over the weekend, and I said, let me scope this out. Let me, let me see if I could confirm that the phone call was indeed for a, a, a new vaccine on Monday. Well, that started a 35-minute runaround where I, was, I went to one location— they did not see my name in the system. They didn't even see that I received the first vaccine. They said, oh, no, you need to go over here. So I go to another room where they were giving the vaccines out. Here again, they did not see my name. They did not have the appointment. They weren't quite sure what was going on with the, the cancellation. I had to go to a third location all within just a few steps. It's not as if I had to get in my car and drive somewhere. But finally, they found the proper database that I was in. They saw my first appointment, and they saw this second rescheduled appointment. Now, why do I bring this up? Am I complaining? Am I all PO'd about this? No, not at all. I'm very grateful that I'm able to get vaccinated. But what it points to is that there are going to be challenges. And here I am. If you think I am an insider, Dr. Galati, I, am a, a, I know how the system works, and yet I have fallen victim to some of the confusion. So my, my message here tonight is, number one, do not get discouraged. Number two, until you get the vaccine, continue social distancing, wearing your mask, washing your hands. If you are sick or don't feel well, stay away from other people. You yourself, wherever you have to go to leave the house, size up where you're going as far as a higher risk encounter or a lower risk encounter. You still cannot totally let your guard down. So stay patient and stay, remain an advocate for yourself and those in your family. It may require more questions. It may require additional phone calls, but you have to stay on top of it. Don't throw your arms up and give up. All right, let's get going here. Stay tuned. We will be back in a minute. Welcome back, everybody. You're tuned into Your Health First. I'm Dr. Joe Galati. Every Sunday between 7 and 8 p.m. Don't forget, go to drjoegalati.com. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter. Stay informed and always, always be part of the program. All right. Well, as promised, Dr. Sonny Harpavat is back in the studio. Sonny was with us a few weeks ago when we were talking about fatty liver disease and obesity, especially in children. As a reminder, he's on faculty at Baylor College of Medicine and Texas Children's Hospital. He is a pediatric hepatologist, a liver disease specialist. So he comes with a different angle with regard to obesity and fatty liver or liver disease in general, looking at it through the eyes and the lens of a 
pediatrician and someone that deals with young children and adolescents. So, Dr. Harbavat, welcome back to Your Health First. It's great to have you in the studio again tonight. Thanks very much, Dr. Galati. It's great to be here. I hope everyone's having a great evening tonight. Well, we were last, well, it was it was over a month ago, we were talking. And if anybody wants to hear that interview, you can go to the podcast, which is posted. If you go to drjogalati.com, click under the podcast, you will see the Childhood Obesity podcast that is there. But but the the first question really tonight is if there was no obesity, we could take a magic potion and get rid of obesity, especially in children. And this may be a bit of a tough question, but what would we not have? How would things look in your clinic if there was no obesity? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. And it's a difficult one to answer. It's hard to envision a world without obesity. For us, we see kids that come in, and the ramifications of obesity aren't instant necessarily for kids. It's really down down the road what they will face if they do develop or if they keep on developing obesity. And so the basic things like heart disease, diabetes, issues like that, health issues, are what obesity leads to. But there's also social issues. People have done studies and they've shown that children who grow up and are obese, they're less likely to get um, higher paying jobs. Mm -hmm. They're less competitive in the workforce. Um, So there's, there's a whole series of ramifications down the road. And in many ways as a pediatrician, what we have to do is convince patients and parents that taking care of yourself now, early on, before you become an adult, will save um, lots of problems down the road. You know, I've got to say one thing we always tell parents is the disease we deal with is a disease called non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Right. It's a disease um, that affects the liver, and it's tightly correlated with obesity. And, of course, that now, that disease is very quickly becoming the number one reason for liver transplant. So in many ways in that office room when we're talking to parents and patients, what we're really telling them is, we don't want you to get a liver transplant when you get older and leave our clinics. And that's a very focused, very concrete goal for people to wrap their heads around and realize this is important. And even though the ramifications of obesity might not be happening right now in my eight-year-old or nine-year-old, um, they will creep around the corner in the coming decades. So we need to address the problem now. When, when you're sitting or standing in the clinic with the, the patient. Let's say it's an eight-year-old. And an eight-year-old, bless their heart, they, they, I would think, have a very tough time figuring out where they fit in the grand scheme of, of the world. And so you really are relying on the parents, the relatives, the grandmother, the aunt that may come with that child. When you explain this, and you're a great communicator, when you explain this to say, it may not have something you see right now with regard to obesity, but you are worried when they are 18 or 28 years old. What is the reaction? What is the reaction on their face? What do they ask you? A certain level of concern? Or does it just fly over their head that they hear you, but they don't hear you? What? Tell us what that's like. 
Yes, yeah, definitely. So pediatrics is a is a very very special profession, and the reason why is because kids, as we all know, are malleable. Kids change, mm-hmm. and so it's important the way you present something to a family and to parents. But we always run on that assumption that a child is willing to change, and a child has time to change. Now, the most important thing when approaching a family, and I hope all the listeners understand this part, when a parent thinks their child might not be the right weight, meaning might be overweight or obese. Mm-hmm. The first thing we have to do is destigmatize this. Obesity, overweight, these are simply numbers. We have a scale, we measure the weight, we compare it to the height in a factor called the BMI. And if the BMI is above a certain threshold, essentially above 85th percent of the population, you're considered overweight. If it's above 95% of the population at at that age, you're considered obese. So it's important that when a child hears the word obese, that's a term that might be thrown around loosely in in a negative connotation. I'm very quick to point out all this is is a number. That's it. It's a ratio, a number that we've plotted. We're not making any judgments on a child or a family. And I think that's the first step. We destigmatize. We put out the information. And I think that's the first step for encouraging parents and families to, um, to fight this problem. Now, what's another, another really, really interesting aspect of this is um, parents um, actually really um, listen to, the health, to advice for the health of their children. Mm-hmm. So children turn out to be a gateway for the entire family. And when we make this change for children, I am very, very clear to tell them, this isn't only about you, This isn't you have a special diet and the rest of your family gets to do whatever they want. It's very clear that they get a leadership role as the one that brings in good information and change to their family. And so no longer are they felt as like the victim, but they're felt as the leader for their entire family unit. That is a brilliant approach. And on the adult side, we... We are dealing with adults that are overweight and have fatty liver disease, cirrhosis, diabetes, high blood pressure, heart disease. And I will have the exact same type of conversation to say, yes, it, yes we're talking about you, the 55-year-old dad that has a wife and a mother-in-law that lives with them and three kids, and that everybody should follow suit that you're going to tune up your diet, you're going to try to exercise more, et cetera. But I think the, the real key to change at the societal level is through the kids. I, I think we have to work up instead of down. You know, I'm, I'm looking at it from top down. I think you're looking at it from bottom up. And that may truly be the way that whether it's allocating funds or education, which then means it's through the school, it's through the pediatric offices to get to the parents. Yeah, you know, you don't meet very many uh, parents that don't want to do the best thing for their child. Mm -hmm. Um, Whether it's putting them in activities, giving them a good education, sending them to Disney World, taking them to Disney World, they want to do good for their kid. They want to do well for their kid. Um, And... Because of that, I think we're in a special spot with children to help parents do the right thing for their child, which ultimately 
ends up leading to changes throughout the family. I think one of the one of the fun aspects of this is when a, a child comes back for a repeat visit and will sort of tell tell me what they've done and how they've done to improve uh, their their diet, mm-hmm. uh, how their weight went down and why their weight went down. And then they'll make some comments about their family and how their family could have done a little better or done a, a couple of other changes. It becomes a sort of a fun game that um, everyone can get involved with. And again, centered around the child because everyone has a vested interest in helping the child. Right. That is that is key. Now, al- along the same lines here, for those that listen to the radio program, those that know me from the clinic and clinical practice or just all of the things that, that I do, there's no doubt that I have a uh, an interest in food, nutrition, cooking, and fighting obesity. And sometimes I, I, I personally feel that you fall into that one-trick pony sort of thing. Joe Galati is here. He's talking about obesity. You see him over there. He's talking about obesity. But my opinion is that it, it's not being overplayed, that it truly is the root the root problem of all of these other diseases that kill people. What's your take? Yeah, so I think um, in pediatrics, when we think about diseases with um, that are that are that occur frequently, we think about diseases like asthma. Mm-hmm. We think about diseases like dental caries. Obesity is right up there in terms of number of cases, in terms of how many children it affects. Um, so. Obesity, of course, affects the um, child and it affects aspects of health, again, like diabetes, hypertension, heart disease. But what I'd really want to emphasize is, you know, those diseases sometimes take time to develop. So they're usually going to be in the adult side. But the social aspects of obesity are also profound. Now, we have to be very, very careful when we have teenage patients we aren't asking them to try to fit images that are unrealistic, that are often portrayed in movies and um, in magazines of body types. We're, we're not aiming for that. But it just goes to show how obesity and essentially the way we look to the outside world is a really, really deep-rooted issue that has ramifications later as well as now. So I think putting obesity in the center of a whole series of things, not only your health, but also your mental health and right. sort of your how it fits in culture, I think are, are extremely important and aspects we should never forget about. All right, with that said, we're going to take a quick break. I'm with Dr. Sonny Harpervet from Texas Children's Hospital. More health and wellness information on the way, talking about fatty liver and obesity in children. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Thanks very much for tuning in this Sunday evening. Final segment, we're with Dr. Sonny Harpavat. No stranger to Your Health First, no stranger to the Texas Medical Center. He is on faculty at Baylor College of Medicine and Texas Children's Hospital, where 
He takes care of people with liver disease, digestive disorders in smaller scale patients than me in the pediatric realm. And we've been talking about obesity and fatty liver disease. One thing I want to bring up, Sonny, is the Texas Liver Foundation, texasliverfoundation.org. You are the president. Tell everybody tonight what that is all about and why they need to go there and check it out. So this is an exciting organization. It's a new organization that's just started to fill the need of providing information and advocacy for both adults and children with liver disease. Now, most of us on the show tonight either have liver disease or know someone, a friend or a relative with liver disease. Liver disease doesn't get as much attention as heart disease or or problems um, like stroke. But liver disease is extremely, extremely common and can be extremely destructive. So the idea here of this organization is for Texans to be able to be equipped with information and power to address their liver diseases and in many ways either prevent or treat them when they arise. Yeah, no no doubt. And like so many things, once you start looking around or start thinking about a particular situation or a problem, i.e. liver disease, you're going to find that there is a lot of liver disease out there. And the key thing, regardless, regardless of the medical condition you're you're talking about, it's that awareness and getting in early. And that's that really is the mission here. So with regard to obesity, especially in children, how do you think this this happened? This is sort of a rhetorical question, but what were the steps over the last 10, 15, 20 years that we have gotten to the point that not only adults are obese, but children are becoming obese? Right. So I think the first part to dissect this question, we have to do it thoughtfully. Again, this is a question where, just like many questions in our in our times, there'll be people that think one way and people that think another. And right. by I think what's needed is an open conversation. So I think the first question is, has this happened or has it always been there? And to understand that, we can look back at historical data. And it's shown, based on historical data, that obesity and overweight, the uh, amount of it has increased steadily year by year over the last few decades. This is both in adults and in pediatrics. There is a a little bit of good news. Um, For pediatrics, it looks like it might be plateauing out, Mm -hmm. but of course it's plateauing out at a very high level. (laughs) And so the idea is now to try to bring it back down. So I think the first step is to say, when asking how did it happen, we should really take a step back and say, are we really different from before? And the answer to that is, is yes, we are different from before. So now we have to ask, how does how did obesity happen, which is the same question that an individual patient will ask when they come to see us. Not how did it happen over time in society, but how did it happen to me? And again, I think the easiest way to think about this is to keep it as simple as possible. Because in order to solve complex solutions, sometimes complex problems, sometimes we need to identify the simplest solutions. And the simplest thing I do when I, when I talk to them is, I, and I mentioned this in the last program, and I hope to emphasize it again here for everyone listening, I simply ask them, I pretend like we all exercise together. We came into their house and we were thirsty. I envisioned them opening up the refrigerator and then telling me, what can we have to drink? 
And at that point, they'll usually tell me what they have to drink and water will come up and then an orange juice will come up, a soda and et cetera, et cetera. And then eventually they'll remember that milk was in their fridge also. That's sort of our way to make sure they've, they've covered everything. They've covered the full inventory. Um, the, the occurrence, the prevalence of these types of drinks that are sugary, and I'm talking about sodas, but I'm also talking about juices. Right. And the consumption of these, ju- these drinks in such large quantities, I think, is probably our first step to understanding how this happened, which is what are we putting into our bodies that is different from what we are putting into our bodies in years past. Um, and, and I think it really comes down to that. Now, the flip side is, are we exercising less? Are we spending more time in front of the computer or, in kids' cases, certainly video games? Right. Um, and I think there is a, a component of that as well. But I think fundamentally, when we ask ourselves, what are we putting into our bodies which is different from what we were putting into our bodies before, I think that's when we'll start seeing sugar creeping in in amounts that we would have never imagined in years past. Well, a, a lot of this with the drinks is the selection. You walk into any grocery store, gas station, convenience store, there is a wall of brightly lit refrigerators, containers, and you are just like a magnet. You are pulled to these things, and you grab them, and they do taste good, and you get hooked on them. Yes. So, so, and to be fair and balanced, I have to say the, the, the industry that's in charge of making drinks has done a really nice job in the last few years shifting to alternatives that taste really, really good, but that don't give such a big sugar load. So they're seeing this, and they're working on it and helping helping. But I but the problem does exist. And um, again, when we look at drinks, if you go to the grocery store and you see you go to the orange juice aisle and you see two cartons of orange juice, one right next to each other, the exact same brand, one has vitamins in it, the other doesn't in the equivalent price. Well, as a consumer, you're not going to ask, do I need the orange juice? You're going to ask, oh, I can get this with vitamins for the same amount of money. So you'll go straight to the orange juice with vitamins. So right there, your mind has been tricked to even think that you needed the orange juice. You already assumed you needed the orange juice and you just picked the one with vitamins. So the idea here is that marketers have done a very, very nice job um, of selling the product, which is their job. And hopefully they'll do the same nice job of selling a product of of less sugar. Um, But right now, the choices are immense and the battle is at the individual level. Each parent, each child makes that decision, makes that battle every day. We're there to help them, but they make that battle every day. So I would, I would say that the simple task of drinking more water, avoiding the fruit juices, and certainly all of the manufactured sports drinks, even though I would agree they are coming out smaller size and less sugar, Still, milk and water, from a pediatric standpoint, is where you're at. Milk and water, that's where we are, and it is remarkable. That's the task kids get for the first month after they see me, and when they come back, if they follow it, the weight, in a, in a just a, a magical way, the weight either will stay the same or it'll start going down. It really is the first step. I think you'll see some really good changes when you try to implement that. All right, Dr. Sonny Harpavat. 
Texas Children's hepatologist, liver specialist. Again, thanks for coming in tonight. And I, and and without a doubt, this is an important topic, and we will have you back without a doubt. Thanks very much, Dr. Galati. Good night to everyone. Have a great evening. Thanks for listening today to our podcast. Don't forget, for more information, check out drjoegalati.com. Information about my book, Eating Yourself Sick, is available there, as well as our clinical practice, radio program, and social media links. We need you to be part of our tribe and community. Until we meet again, I'm Dr. Joe Galati. Ciao.